everyone. Welcome back to New Slang. I hope everyone had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. I am music journalist Thomas Mooney, and this week has been one of those weeks that I've had circled on the calendar for quite a while, and I'm so glad it all kind of got lined up and we were able to do it. This Friday, that's July 9th, the Flatlanders are releasing Treasure of Love. It's their first studio record since 2009's Hills and Valleys, which I've kind of dubbed this Flatlanders week for New Slang since these past couple of weeks, I've been able to sit down and talk with Jimmy Del Gilmore, Joe Ely, and Butch Hancock of the Flatlanders. And as you'd expect by the title of this episode, we are kicking it off with this conversation with Jimmy Del Gilmore. So I mention it plenty during this podcast, so y'all will probably already know this, but just in case you don't, maybe this is your first time listening to New Slang. I'm based in Lubbock, and New Slang's origins are as a Lubbock, Panhandle, West Texas-based music blog. And much of those roots of what New Slang is was always about the music that came from this place and conversations with artists who claim Lubbock as their home at one time or another. So in some sense, we're coming really full circle with these interviews with Jimmy, Joe, and Butch. I don't know if we'll ever be able to fully give the Flatlanders their proper due. Hopefully we're able to contextualize and get a better understanding of what the Flatlanders did for Lubbock. I think to understand the Flatlanders is to understand them as individual artists. And so when I talk about them in this sense of like what they did, I'm really kind of talking about what they did solo because there was those huge gaps between what the Flatlanders were as, as a group and as a band. So when I say they, I'm really just kind of talking about their individual solo careers more so than the, the band itself, because obviously as that first title that just kind of came back into circulation back in, I guess it was 1990, more a legend than a band. And that was very much the case. But at any rate, the Flatlanders, they came up at this like really pivotal time within Lubbock and Texas music in general. They're really coming up in this transition period of sorts where you're kind of seeing the phase out of the big dance hall bands and the rise of the folk songwriter, the country songwriter. And there's plenty of artists who are right there in that same boat as Jimmy, Joe, and Butch. But for Lubbock, they kind of set that standard or the template going forward. And if you look at like any music scene, it's almost always when the artists start putting a value on writing their own material and telling the stories of their people. When a music scene starts to cultivate the importance of the songwriter, the storyteller, that's when I think things really change for it. And you really see those ripples even today. You see those lasting effects on Lubbock. It's in part why folks really think of Lubbock as a songwriter town. There's really a reputation for that. It's why songwriters here, they feel that pressure of being a songwriter. Now granted, that's probably a universal feeling by now, but I still think it's slightly different here in Lubbock. So up here in the Panhandle, and Lubbock specifically, you have these big giant figures of Buddy Holly, and of course like just the touch of Bob Wills, originally from Turkey, Texas. And then the one that maybe goes a little bit underrated is Woody Guthrie because he did live in Pampa for a time. While he wasn't a household name by any stretch during this time in Pampa, it was this very, very brief period, you do get that Dust Bowl sense to what his music was doing. I say all that because like those kind of figures, they're giant, they're iconic, they're big. And while yes, they are talking about 
Rule Rule Life, they're talking about West Texas, they're talking about the panhandle, they're almost too big. When it comes to Jimmy Joe, Butch, Terry Allen, that bunch, those songs and like what they're doing, it almost grounded it in a very commonplace, a very plain spoken kind of way where it seemed achievable, it seemed obtainable. And that's just like a small little facet of what I think is so important about what they did for Panhandle and Lubbock music. Now, I feel like I could go on forever about this, but one, you probably kind of get the point by now, and two, you really came to hear Jimmy talk more so than me. Today's presenting partner is our pals over at Desert Door Texas Sultal. If you've been listening to New Slang for really any amount of time, you'll know that Desert Door is one of my all-time favorite premium, high-quality spirits. If you haven't or aren't sure what exactly a Sotol is, I'm going to let you in on a little secret that's going to up the game on your liquor cabinet. For starters, the best reference point that I can point you to is to think about a tequila or a mezcal. Do you feel that western desert, that Texas ruggedness? Okay, Sotol is like that, but a little bit more refined, smooth, and fragrant. It intrigues the palate and offers these hints of vanilla and citrus. There's an earthiness that often sends me right back to my Trans-Pecos and Far West Texas roots. There's plenty to love about Desert Door. For me, it all starts right there. A close second is just how versatile Desert Door really is. You can go full highbrow and experiment with concocting a variety of cocktails that call for muddling fresh fruit, sprigs of thyme, sticks of cinnamon. It's perfect for that world. If you're a little bit more down home, if you've just rolled up the sleeves of your denim Wrangler button-up, it's perfect for that as well. If you're just desiring something that's short and sweet, it hits the mark every time. Desert Door is genuine and authentically West Texan. It's inherently West Texan. They harvest soto plants out in the wild and are knowledgeable conservationists at heart. That's obviously something incredibly important to me. They shine a light on what makes West Texas special and unique and worth preserving and keeping it safe from exploitation. Right now, you can find Desert Door all over Texas, Colorado, Tennessee, and there's budding numbers in places like New Mexico, Arizona, California, and Georgia. Best thing you can do is to check out DesertDoor.com to find where Desert Door is locally. Again, that's DesertDoor.com. If this is your first time listening to New Slang, I would appreciate it if you hit that subscribe button. New Slang is available virtually everywhere you can listen to podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave one of those five-star reviews. That does go a long way. Head on over to the merch store while you're at it. That would be New Slang podcast.bigcartel.com over there we have t-shirts and shot glasses and coffee mugs and a bunch of other stuff go check it out go buy something and yeah we'll make this one really really short all the links that i just mentioned they will be in the show notes as well i do want to make a quick note we did this interview on zoom and for some reason at the very beginning here it kind of jumbled up the audio i went ahead and cut it off because it's just really me easing into the interview and mentioning treasure of love and then we just kind of start talking about radio so so i'm just gonna cut myself off right there and just go into where jimmy picks up on radio which yes let's get on into the interview here is jimmy dale gilmore
that. And we had, of course, in Lubbock, we had country station, uh, top 40 type stuff. And then we also had uh, even, you know, television coming along, Dick Clark, music, a portion of that, uh, you know, Little Richard and Fats Domino and Lloyd Price. It was just radio music. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that's New Orleans music. It was just these songs that I liked a lot. So, and that was just really a golden age of that before, uh, before, before FM came along, and and before it got also locked down to playlists. You know that you you kind of you could have some of everything. We yeah. could hear the real real like hardcore blues and hillbilly country stuff on the border stations late at night. And we could hear the, we could hear the real commercial Nashville stuff and, the and, and, and LA and New York and, you know, all the, all the music being produced everywhere. We, we had it all to choose from. And it seemed like after that, it, it, people started, uh, that was one thing that, that Joe and Butch and I all had in common was we liked so many different kinds of music, and we never did go, oh, I'm a rock and roll guy, and I can't stand that country stuff, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And we knew lots of people that were like that. They'd decide, this is the camp I'm in, so I'm not going to like that other kind of music. And I think that's just stupid. Right. Yeah, It's it's one of those things where even if you are like a rock and roll guy, you guys being from Lubbock, Texas, being from Texas, you're going to be informed by country because it's inescapable yeah. in some respects. And, um, you know, I, I think you always hear stories uh, about y'all's generation growing up in Lubbock and going out and having these parties where you guys would like park all around and have like the headlights all pointing in and tuning into the same radio station. <laughs> is there is was that kind of the way it was growing up or is that oh, kind of more know, romanticized that sort of thing happened a few times but it was definitely true that we hung out together and listened to the radio in the car and you know and and at i don't remember doing it exactly in that way more than a handful of times but it did happen you know, <laughs> it wasn't like a nightly occurrence but <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. I always, it's this interesting, um, you know, I I've lived in Lubbock the last 10, 15 years now. And I think it's, it's very easy to, uh, romanticize this point in Lubbock as far as where you guys are coming from, uh, Terry Allen's the main brothers of the, of the world where we, we kind of miss the, um, it's hard to comprehend maybe the, the time span where it's easy to just think all this stuff happened in 18 months or something, but there's these lulls, these, these years, this yeah. these gaps that go in between these, uh, these monumental albums or these moments where you guys are playing along or, or whatever the case. Um, what, what's it like, I guess, reflecting back and understanding that, like, or like trying to maybe um, have other people understand that, that Lubbock was it was a spot where these great musicians were coming from, but it was also like that in a lot of other places as well. And maybe yeah. at the the time gap, there was there's maybe some more quote unquote boring times between 
these uh, really nice, great, uh, you know, high points. Well, one thing about that was a little unusual about Lubbock, and I think you know, in in till fairly recently, actually, was that it it was uh, it was dry. There was mm-hmm. no, and since and so any any bars or anything that 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 had alcohol and all were were illegal and so <laughs> we uh, Joe and I both played in a lot of those places in 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 uh in early on I didn't play in bands but Joe did and, and then but we both played also solo in some little listening places and some of them were these bootleg joints that were so there was a, there was an underground culture kind of in Lubbock that where and there was lots and lots and lots of good music, but not anything you would hear of anywhere on the radio. You know, it was a it was, it was a rare thing. There were so many great musicians in Lubbock, but it was rare for any of them. You know, hardly anybody did what what Buddy did, or. Although you know there was a lot of people like you know Mac Davis and and uh, and Waylon Jennings, there was a lot of Lubbock people that became international stars, but there was tons of equally great music that never got heard anywhere. It was, and I I kind of I pretty much suspect that that's still the case there now. You know I I haven't I haven't spent any time in Lubbock in a long time, so I don't really know. The the young musicians hanging out there, you know, everything's changed. Everything's all different. Lubbock's bigger. It's there are bars. Yeah, there are. <laughs> and, but we, uh, and I I sort of think that that in lots of ways that's that's the case everywhere. There there are lots of good musicians all over the place that get overlooked and and some of them end up never being noticed and you know through flukes of of timing of luck you know one time um, I got I got to be friends with with Colonel Tom Parker before he died and he was and he told me one time you know who I'm talking about right Mm -hmm. Elvis's, yes, sir, Colonel. You know, and he uh, and he told me that one time that he said there there are three things that that you have to have to become genuinely successful in in show business. You know, in music or any show, any probably in any business, <laughs> but but in show business in particular, he said you have to. He said you got to have. First of all, you got to actually have some talent to for it to keep going at all, and you have to have hard work. It, it doesn't happen without that happening and luck. And he said, if any one of those three is missing, then it it won't happen. It will, and that's and I, I'm you know by the age I am now, I know I know so many people that were that had the talent and the hard work, but they didn't have the luck. It, and uh, uh, 
I've, I've always kind of felt like like that, you know, it was a strange fluke that several people did break through in Lubbock, some hugely internationally, and then some kind of like us, you know, that were, you know, had good solid music careers without being giant stars, and then all kinds of other great musicians that are, that that have, they just went on into other jobs and stuff because it didn't it just didn't pan out right. Yeah, I yeah, I, don't I, I answered your question exactly, but that's the train of thought you <laughs> started. <laughs> no, I think there's there's very much something to that whole. Uh, when you see people talk about, especially like in to, to give the example of like when people win awards for anything, you know, they never ever kind of, uh, thank just the, the serendipity of luck, because like, I, I think that a lot of times, like it is, <laughs> it is luck where you got to be in the right place in the right time sometimes. And, yeah. um, and I think that you can do that with, with not just the, the music industry, but but a lot of things in life is contributed to just the timing of luck every once in a while. But you mentioned how like you know there's uh, art artists that that come out of a place and they they become globally known. They become known um, past their region, and then there's of course always this underbelly of of talent that just never kind of gets recognized, other than just being from where they're from. I, I, th- I think that still happens here in Lubbock and I think that it probably happens in most places, but what's interesting about Lubbock and maybe this is just because um, again, going back to kind of being here for the last 15 years or so. And that's the, I wonder how much of Lubbock now is like um, getting notoriety because of Lubbock of the past. Um, as far as like, the if we just buy into this whole well there's something in the water kind of thing right yeah. where like people just kind of if you mentioned you're from Lubbock you're a Lubbock musician um you feel like maybe there's a little bit of that cut from the same fabric of of these guys like y'all from from the past i wonder if there's a little bit of that happening in in today's world oh i'm sure I, it, it, it's bound to be that that's part of uh, you know, there is the old, uh, nothing succeeds like success. <laughs> it's been true forever. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I 100% agree on that one. Um, something that's that's maybe I find really interesting is, is when an artist uh, realizes like the first time that like they can do songs, they can write songs, and it doesn't necessarily have to be where you're just playing someone else's songs. Do you, do you remember like the, the first time, like you kind of realized or recognized that some of your peers were, were writing original music and that, you know, that's something that you could dive into as well. Yes. I, I know exactly. I know when it happened. I was, uh, I was at Monterey high school and I was, Terry Allen was who I knew just a little bit around, and he was older than me. You know, he's two or three years older than me. And uh, so I didn't, we weren't real close friends or anything. Later on, we became very close friends. But uh, we, it was a high school, like a carnival at Monterey. Like it's like either a, a I, don't, I can't remember Halloween or something. I, I don't remember for sure. But 
uh, I remember going in this one room and there's a guy over in the corner playing the piano, playing his own songs, and it was Terry. And it was just wonderful. It just knocked me out. And and it was, uh, I was already playing guitar and, you know, learning to play and, and doing a little bit of singing, but not, I, I wasn't a public performer at all. This was, I was, you know, in high school and, and he, uh, and, but that, I think I had always believed that I was, I, I kind of planned on being a songwriter someday. I think that was always it was sort of built into me because my, my dad and I had this shared love of that, that early music that I was talking about. My dad was a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but this was the, this, that was the first time I heard a person I knew, <laughs> a, a real live person, play a song they had written. And he played several songs. I could remember little snippets of just a couple of them, but he played, and I, and it, that was what opened my mind. I, uh, I've said a lot of times looking back on it, I, I kind of think that my belief was, uh, I want to be a songwriter, but to be a songwriter, you have to be old and grown up and have had a lot of experiences and stuff like that. And then ter- there was Terry, right? Playing these really great songs and, and, uh, just being so interesting. You know? <laughs> so it was, it was, it's strangely, you know, my, my history has a very deep connection with Terry Allen from way before. And then later on, after he moved out to California and, uh, you know, went to art school and all that stuff uh, was when I actually got to know him. I was out there with with some friends, and, and Terry and I got to be real close friends. Even then, though, I still, you know, I was, it's still that I was younger than him and everything, and I regarded him as uh, like a, a elder statesman or something, <laughs> <laughs> even though he was probably 23. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, but that was a, that was a very specific thing. And then later on, of course, you know, Butch and I had already been friends long before that, but Butch and I both became musicians without the other one knowing it. It was very strange. We, when, when we both found out that, that we both played and, and, and liked a lot of the same music, we already were, you know, adept enough to, to start sitting around and playing together. And I, uh, but Butch, real early on uh, started coming up with such quality songs. You know, that, that was sort of a, the, the bar was raised <laughs> for, for, for what could be done with songs. There were yeah. two or three people for me. Terry was one, Butch was one, Al Straley was one that, that were just, you know, sort of in my age group. Butch is Butch is a couple months younger than me, but uh, Al, both Al and Terry, were, you know, several years older. But there were these immensely talented, great musicians, like full, full blown, great songwriters. And, and of course, they were unknown at the time. But uh, 
but anyway, there, there was, so there was, there was actually a specific incident where I was inspired to become a songwriter. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Terry, I've, I've had the, uh, I've been able to talk with him a couple of times, um, about his records and it's always one of those, it's, it's weird because it's like, you're talking with Terry Allen now and trying to understand Terry Allen, the, the 20 year old, the, the, 25 year old and the 35 year old and not view him as like, you know, the, this smart, wise aged old man who you, for, you know, you, you really, you think of him as like, you know, kind of one of these heroes and uh, trying to figure out him as like the, the 20 year old kid, you know, it's, uh, he, was, he was already, even back then, back in high school, he was a guy that was uh, very, well-liked and charismatic kind of person. You know, he was, he was always kind of any, always real individualistic sort of person. But, but then, you know, the, all the whole, the range of his talents, you know, didn't become known until later. This episode of New Slang is brought to you by the Blue Light Live here in Lubbock, Texas. Blue Light has long been the heart and soul of the Lubbock singer-songwriter scene and has been a home away from home for some of Texas Americana country and rock and roll's finest over the years. Talk with 99.9% of the songwriters who have come out of Lubbock and the panhandle at large over the past 20 years, and they'll point to just how integral and necessary the Blue Light is. With live music and touring slowly but surely coming back, spots like the Blue Light are getting back to their usual ways as well. That means music every night of the week. Do you want to see that schedule? Well, I've got a few options for you. One, go to their socials and give them a follow. That is at Blue Light Live on Twitter, at The Blue Light Live on Instagram, and of course, by just searching The Blue Light Live on Facebook. They're consistently posting that week's lineup of shows as well as those heavy hitters that ought to be on your calendar that are coming up on the horizon. Two, check out bluelightlubbock.com as well. There they have the full schedule, the cover charges, time, any of those specials that may be happening. While there, go check out their merch page. They have a wide range of hats, koozies, hoodies, sweaters, beanies, jackets, and so much more. You can, of course, get all of your merch needs when you go see your favorite band take the stage at Blue Light. Just ask the bartender and they will get you all set. Speaking of which, that's another great way of seeing who's playing there. Just go to the Blue Light. It's at 1806 Buddy Holly Avenue here in Lubbock, Texas. And of course, again, that is bluelightlubbock.com. I'll throw a link into the show notes too. Maybe I'll see you there. Okay, let's get back to the show. You mentioned Butch early on as far as becoming really prolific and as a songwriter. Uh, you know, obviously so many of his songs and so many of y'all's catalog in general points back to um, rural Lubbock living, uh, this moment in time where, you know, you're, you're kind of basing um, a lot of songs off of the, I guess, like generations of families who have lived out here for y'all, uh, family that, that either were farmers or, you know, living out in Lubbock, uh, 
rural living and this moment in, in time that we've kind of been talking about as far as like uh, getting where, where it's, it's actually like um, feasible to, to go out into the world and, and go out to California or go out to wherever you feel the, the culture is right. Um, what do you, what did, do you feel like you were always like, I don't know, maybe like some of your first, uh, I guess like, um, your first themes, your first kind of subject matter was always going to be tied to, to what life was like growing back, growing up in Lubbock or in the South Plains in general. Well, for myself, I don't think my writing has reflected that as much as my general taste has. Because, mm-hmm. you know, for Butch, for one thing, is just a, a true master of that. Of, you know, you know, along with a lot of other stuff. But, you know, because most most of my writing has been less specific than that, less, you know, geographically oriented or you know, some of it. Right. Is, but but mostly my mine is tended more to the sort of esoteric or you know like uh, I don't know or or maybe psychological maybe that's and uh, but it but the that that sense of it that sense of a the we've talked about this a lot you know Terry has talked about it a lot Terry and and Butch and Joe and I all have have. All through the years, we've kind of talked about what is it, you know, what what was happening with us that that uh, informed our our music the way it did, and it's some, a lot of it just remains a mystery. But Butch and and Terry both have talked on and on about about how the uh, I think the way Terry put it was that the horizon was. You know the main feature, mm-hmm. and so you just wanted to know what was past it, and so we had to we had to leave. <laughs> it's sort of, and uh, but I don't know. I it, uh, the the whole subject of what produces music is such a mysterious and and unending interesting question to me and I love it. I love to theorize about it, but I don't know anybody yet that's come up with any real (laughs) (laughs) answers for any of it. Right. I I mean, it's, it has to probably be one of those things where there's no right answer and there's no wrong answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, and even like for an individual, um, it may be something for one song and it may be something totally different. Absolutely. Exactly. That's right. Whatever, like, kind of trips the switch to make you feel like you want to express something. That that's it's it's luck again. <laughs> In a sense, it, serendipity is always the a big feature of of, of all creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of of your catalog, um, Joe's and Butch's, the Flatlanders in general. Um, one of these things that I, I've always really loved and appreciated as far as going and trying to figure out what's going on um, is how there's a, there's a shared catalog in a sense where 
you guys are recording each other's songs and you're re-recording songs at different points in y'all's life. Um, for you, like, what do you like to see like that journey of that song as far as like, you know, something that was cut on like the first Flatlanders record and seeing it then pass into what Joe does it on a solo record and then, then what you bring back to yeah. it and what have, have you guys had conversations about that? And like, what maybe like brings you back to a song? Well, you know, uh, it, it is, it's really, it's really fun to, to watch a, a song metamorphosize you know, over, mm-hmm. over, a, over a period of time. But, uh, and, and we talk about these kinds of things all the time, but we also never really, once again, uh, I, for, for many, many years, I have, once a year, I have taught a, a songwriting class at this place called the Omega Institute in upstate New York, and a week-long class, and, and it, uh, I don't really... I don't really teach it. I sort of organize a situation where people do a bunch of writing together and then discuss how the process. And so people learn about each other's process and each other, you know, so I always say that I organize it so that the class teaches the class. And, but these, these sub, what happened to me through the, you know, especially the first several years. I've done it for like 25 years. And the first several years was like, wow, uh, me learning all these different attitudes that people have, finding out all these different perspectives that people had, and also me having to learn how to articulate things that were, the way I thought already, except that I never had put it down on paper or or expressed it. So I have I kind of have a catalog of a bunch of these thoughts and ideas about that whole about that whole subject. And it and like I said, it still remains there remains an element of mystery in it of like why in the world is a melody why do certain melodies grab everybody? You know why do why you know why does a melody even do anything to you at all? That's weird, you know. <laughs> but it's still a fact. And thank goodness. Yeah. You know, music music really, really, really has a a power and and uh, uh, uh the the love of it is something that brings a lot of people together you know shared love of music is one of the greatest things that 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 bonds communities together yeah absolutely it uh and it's a mystery <laughs> yeah I, I think it all it, it's uh if we go back in history it's the that's the um what connects us to like the the fire you know the the, the story yeah. the telling of stories and um, trying to tell our story, right. In a lot of ways, or like trying to figure out what that story is, why, why, what connects us all together. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's the chicken or the egg thing, right. As far as, um, 
is it us telling the stories and we, we discovering why music is, is like that connective tissue or is it the other way around where, um, you know, it's just the vehicle, but it's, it, yeah, it's a very, very fascinating thing. Um, one of the things that I was wanting to ask you about was, um, the last record you did with Dave Alvin, uh, Downey to Lubbock. Um, when I first heard that song, I, I really loved the, the song specifically because it felt like um, you guys really tapped into this whole thing of where, of course, he's talking about Lubbock and then you're talking about going out to California and basically kind of in a lot of ways having like similar upbringings, but also thinking that maybe the other places where all the cool yeah. stuff's happening. Um, what was, what was like, what was writing that song uh, like? Can you take me back to, to, I guess like the origins of that song and, and uh, that project in general? Well, it was that, uh, you know, Dave uh, started the song. He, he came up with that idea, you know, that I'm, I'm a, down to Lubbock bound, you know, <laughs> and, and he, uh, and then we were, we were in the studio recording it. And this is really kind of strange, but he, uh, this, this way, not usual for me. I don't usually work in this way and it wasn't planned, but, uh, in my mind, we were put, and I think this was the intention, you know, it was like, we're just going to uh, put down some, some dummy tracks to get it going, you know, so that we have something to work on. You know, it was, we'll have the form and all that. And he had, he had a couple of verses. And then, so, and then, and he had, he laid out, it's going to be, you know, him and then me and the chorus together and him and me and a chorus together. And then, uh, so I just kind of, I just totally ad-libbed it. I just, just, I just, you know, he, he had his verses recorded and I, I was in there in the, in the, in the, the booth, you know, and just, I just totally off the top of my head made up those verses. <laughs> and then, and I thought, okay, these are throwaway. I'll, you know, I'll go back to the hotel. We were out in LA. So I was, we did, did the whole, all the recording out there and, and, uh, and I'll, you know, I'll write some, I'll sit down and really write some stuff for this. And when, when we got through with it, I, I said something like that to Dave and said, no, he said, we already got it. You got it. <laughs> so we, had, we used the, the, the scratch, you know, so, and that, that was an unusual uh, thing for me. It didn't even occur to me to think of it as that this was, what we were going to put on the actual record, but I, I, I liked it. I like <laughs> once I got over the shock of him saying we were going to keep <laughs> what we just did. Yeah. I think you guys nailed that song. It's one of those things where like that song is so infectious. The, the rhythm of the, you kind of feel like that rhythm of the road of yeah. chugging along. And then, you know, it's like, we, again it, it taps into that whole thing of like wanting to get out of your hometown and then like kind of figuring like oh you know this place these other places that we're going to aren't dissimilar from our own experiences yeah. even though they're you know a little a little different 
the Mexican food's a little different. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, that, that's one of the, uh, the one of the beauties of that of that collaboration between me and Dave was was the fact that we we did come from in certain ways real dissimilar backgrounds, but in other ways it was like all musicians, you know, like we it was a, a shared. Uh, trajectory, I guess, with, with, uh, at least musicians that, you know, like we're not conservatory musicians that learn, you know, that learned in school and learned how to compose and all that stuff. You know, we're, we're basically folk musicians. Right. And, and, and Dave, although, you know, had a, had an electric guitar. I was, you know, I was playing acoustic and harmonica. You know, it, so it, in a sense, it's it's really untrained musicians that expressing themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, which is kind of my definition of folk music. Right. Which going back to this new record, it feels like there's a, there's a lot of maybe shared experience in that way where it's not necessarily like, you know, you guys making up lyrics on the spot, but it feels like this new record is very, very organic in that same sense of like, that it wasn't necessarily like, Oh, we got to get a new record out right now. Um, Oh, absolutely. In fact, it was recorded. It was actually brought about by uh, using off time when we, when we were doing other records but we happen everything happened to be set up and let's and you know let's do some of these old things that we used to do years ago you know and we, we always we had done those songs some of them thousands of times you know and but had never recorded them and it was and it was like so there was very much and they uh, except for the the brand new songs you know the couple that butch wrote and the the one that mm-hmm. joe wrote i didn't have any new ones on it but the they, uh, the rest of them were were things that we just had done a lot many years ago, and still liked them. Still liked the songs, you know. Still were songs that we still might do now and then in a live show. So uh, it was. They had been through a certain kind of winnowing process that wasn't a matter of. You know, let's go back through and pick out which songs we should pull out and do. It didn't happen that way. It was like, hey, y'all, you remember that old Leon Russell song we used to do? And we uh, we had a Joe, Joe actually, you know, had all the recordings and everything, and he went through and kind of sifted through because we got there, there's a bunch more of them than these that that were sort of in that same form. Mm-hmm. And we we probably wouldn't ever want to play them publicly because Lloyd hasn't been brought in yet to fix them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to break one more time to talk about our pals over at Desert Door and offer up a quick Thomas Mooney's cocktail minute. As I've said probably a hundred times by now, by no means am I a seasoned mixologist 
or bartender. But these have been some of my desert door go-tos. For starters, let's just go with the tried and true ranch water. Pop the top off the Topo Chico, take a good swig, now pour in some desert door and top it off by throwing in a few lime wedges. Never fails. This one, it's so simple it probably doesn't even count. But again, pretty foolproof. Do the exact same thing, but get you a Mexican Coca-Cola. I guess you can go with a regular one, but you're really cutting yourself short if you don't opt for the Mexican import variety. All right, here's the change up you've been waiting for. Desert Door Sangria. This one is prime for when you have company coming over and you aren't wanting to just be over there making six different drinks at a time. What you'll need is some Desert Door, obviously, a bottle of red wine, honey, boiling water, apple cider, apple cider vinegar, some cinnamon sticks, a couple of apples, and some thyme sprigs. I know that may sound intimidating, but trust me, it's worth the prep. And honestly, it's pretty easy. For starters, get you a punch bowl, add that honey, those cinnamon sticks, and the boiling water together. Now you're going to want to stir that all up and let it cool down for about an hour or so. Remember, patience is a virtue. Once that's done, add some Desert Door and stir vigorously. Now add the wine, the cider, and the vinegar and continue stirring until it's equally mixed. Now slice those apples up and toss them in. Put in those thyme sprigs as well. Now you can pour that over some ice and you have a mighty fine sangria. Chef's kiss. Anyway, those have been some of my favorite go-tos as of late. And remember, Desert Door is as versatile as vodka and more refined, smooth, complex, and intriguing than tequila. It's rich in balance, and whether you decide to keep it simple or want to experiment, Desert Door is that perfect Texas spirit. There's plenty more recipes over at DesertDoor.com as well. Check out the show notes for a link. All right, let's get back to the episode. Obviously, Lloyd, as far as the a staple of Lubbock music, a, a you know of Texas singer-songwriters, obviously he's not a singer-songwriter, but he's helped form and mold a lot of the records and the music that we've loved the past, you know, 40, 50 years. What's it been, what, what is it like uh, working with him in, in, a, in a role where, you know, he comes in and is playing pedal steel and producing and, and being that uh, voice in, in, in the studio setting? Well, it's that's interesting. That's another like really organic process that happened. Lloyd and uh, I, I knew the older Maines brothers that, you know, his, mm-hmm. his uncles, dad and uncles. And and he. Uh, uh, but uh, Lloyd and, and a couple of the younger ones, we they we had some mutual friends that were DJs. Oh, uh, in around Lubbock, you know, and they, Lloyd was a fan of the Flatlanders way before we ever did any recording or anything. He's, he was one of the few people around Lubbock that, that ever heard us play. You know, he, he, he heard us over at the house and he heard, he heard us and, and long before he did any playing with us or anything. Mm-hmm. And then, and that was, so that was prior to the Ely band period, you know, which, which was when Lloyd and 
and uh, and Joe and uh, you know Jesse Taylor, of course. You know when when the Ely Band happened for all those years and just was one of the best bands ever to come out of anywhere, not just Lubbock, but you know, <laughs> anywhere. He uh, uh, so and then Lloyd. So Lloyd, uh, produ- I'm pretty sure he produced that. The, the see, it, it, it's kind of a tangled history. It's kind of funny. I was actually I was friends with uh, Terry and with Butch and with Joe, all separately. All before they knew each other. It was very weird, and that. And I pretty much I didn't introduce them to each other, but I kind of, I brought Joe and Butch together. I kind of deliberately made you know engineered that to happen because I kept telling Joe I've got this friend that has written the best songs. And you know when we finally got together, we were sitting there one night and Butch is playing some songs. And at some point, Joe looked over at me and went, "Oh, I see what you mean." <laughs> and uh, but I had already been friends with Lloyd too. And then I was gone away. I'd gone to Denver. Was gone, you know, for the for most of the seventies. Well, Lloyd came back to Lubbock and made his those records at at uh, Caldwell Studios, and where Lloyd was the the producer. And then, so so Terry and Joe became friends. Through, through that process, and I, I already had been friends with Terry before, but not in that in that context. So, so then when Lloyd, you know, played with Joe all that time, and then just just of course just more and more and more became recognized as as a you know a musical giant. Uh, he Lloyd also. Uh, I think that uh, my second high tone album was, uh, which Lloyd produced mm-hmm. in Nashville. I think that might have been the first record that Lloyd produced that was on a, uh, other than a, just a local label, other than the, you know the, uh, the Caldwell Studios and the, the what was it? What was his label? Uh, I can't remember that. That all that that smoking the dummy and Lubbock on everything and right I can't remember the label that it originally was on. That's odd. I could, I have to go look it up now. Any but anyway, and then Lloyd. But so it once again it was another like organic process. Lloyd was just such a close friend and you know and had been a fan. before we even re, before we knew what a good musician he was. So it was. It sort of. It sort of happened uh, accidentally, in a way. That we. we it's another one of those uh, luck, lucky <laughs> <laughs> luck things. Right. Yeah. I've. Uh, I've often heard people talk about when it comes to Lloyd, as far as his producing style goes. Is I, I think maybe we think of like producers. Uh, or these iconic producers having very distinct sounds as far as, you know, like T-Bone Burnett or like uh, Rick Rubin or any of these people having very distinct sounds and, and feel to the the records they produce. But 
Lloyd, I've often heard people kind of talk about how, um, how much of a listener he is and how oh, yeah. adaptive he is as far as there's not, you can, you can feel what, what's maybe a, a Lloyd Maines record is, but um, it's not distinct because of him specifically. Yeah, it's like, exactly. it's yeah, just yeah. like, he's very adaptive as far as who he's working with. In, in, a, in a sense, I think that's got a little bit to do with him being such a good musician and, and a sideman. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's a guy that knows how to fit in with a band. And yet at the same time, he's so, he is authoritative. You know, he really does. Uh, he just, he, he's just got the ears and the, and, and plus just such a pleasant personality to work with that it's, he, he has, he has all the ingredients that, you know, that he, he does, he deserved the wonderful mm-hmm. reputation that he has acquired. Right. Yeah. Um, now, another thing that, that I find interesting as far as you go, as far as your career goes, when it comes to releasing music and, and I'm sure people have touched on this as far as the new record, even as far as this new record is about, I don't know, um, Hills and Valleys was 2009. So, you know, about 12 years ago, but like you've, you've had these moments in, in your career where you've had, you know, a 10 year pause. And of course, just the Flatlanders in general, having this giant pause of, of, you know, uh, of notoriety to being a, a, obviously the 90 record, 1990 record, a uh, more legend than a band. Uh, do you think that's always kind of helped y'all as far as, um, <laughs> you know, staying, staying, um, where like these relationships are still strong because there's not necessarily, there's been room for y'all to, to have your own solo stuff. And there's been room for y'all yeah. to do individual things. That's, I guess that's where I'm, I'm going with this question. Yeah. Do you think that's been kind of a, a necessary, uh, that having that room to, to grow in your all's own directions at the same time? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's been a, a, another great, you know, good luck with that we had. It, it was strange because we came together so organically and really out of friendship and mutual uh, fan fans of each other. We we the Flatlanders didn't come together as like a commercial enterprise. It was all, it was totally for the love of the music. Was that was the whole thing that made it happen, and and the whole circle of friends that we were involved with. You know, the whole it was like it, it was a a creative bunch of people, the artists and writers and musicians and everything dancers. You know, that they're part of our gang. That that kind of that kind of ended up sort of centering around the Flatlanders. That was the music was always kind of the you know the center of the. But the the it, it didn't get created as a band that was going to go take the world by storm. And you know the so the the first that first record was never really published. Uh, until 10 years later, and that was in Europe. Mm-hmm. And 
then it was 10 years after that when Moral Legend, when it was published in the U.S. So it was 20 years old when it was first released in the U.S. So in that 20 years, you know, we had done a lot of, a lot of uh, individual stuff, you know, and, and it was like we never we never did plan out any of that stuff. Okay, okay, now let's get back together. It was like it, it's just because circumstances arose that let it be possible and we took advantage of it when it came up. It was all like uh, an experiment. You know, we, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's uh, going back to like that, that seventies version of the Flatlanders, that 71, 72 era, you know, I've, I've heard that you guys had where, you know, that there's, there could be a lot of people who could claim that they were a Flatlander at one point or another, or they were had played with the Flatlanders during this era. And I, I think in a lot of ways, you guys are like a a bridge point between a lot of different eras in music. And specifically with someone like Tommy X Hancock, as far as his his uh importance to Lubbock music before the Flatlanders, and then what what stems out of there, especially with what he did later with uh, you know, Supernatural Family Band and um, what, can you, do you have any, can you, can you expand on like Tommy as far as like, uh, an individual who I think maybe, uh, not a lot of Lubbock people necessarily now know who that is, but obviously played such a, a pivotal role in, in what Lubbock music was. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. That was, that's a really interesting story. And it, it was oddly enough, Tommy, uh, had always he would he was he was a local star you know and and in fact Charlene was was a television star you know local local uh, Lubbock television when when I think when she was a teenager and and Tommy was always the uh, you know he he always would whatever the most popular country and western nightclub in town was it would it would be Tommy owned it <laughs> and usually had the house band that played there, you know, and, but he was, so he was, he was the springboard for all kinds of people, Buddy Holly and Waylon Jennings. And he was, he was the guy that gave them a, a platform. And then uh, he and I became very close friends. He, he it was fun, a, a mutual friend of ours, he had gone to law school, and and our old friend John McDivitt, who was he hasn't been in Lubbock a long time, but he was he was my best friend in grade school. He was in law school with Tommy, and they got to be friends. And so Tom uh, John for several years kept telling me, "You need to meet Tommy Hancock." He's I knew Tommy Hancock, you know, by reputation. He said, "But you got to meet him. He's just great. He's a wonderful, smart guy, you know." And he he finally got us together. And Tommy and I became real close friends because originally because of our shared interest in in like metaphysics and and spirituality and all that, that was kind of the the main basis. But then also when Tommy found out that I was you know, he he thought I was thought I was like a rock and roller that had been living in Austin, you know. He when he found out that I was actually a country musician, his mind was blown. It was, a, and and then that became 
the the uh, it was actually uh, a lot of the early days of the Flatlanders were was started out at, at Tommy and Charlene's house, and the kids, the Supernatural Family Band kid, they were all little. They were kids then, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But they, they, uh, uh, we Tommy was. And, and that he ended up actually playing on the record. He 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 didn't play much with us in any of the live performances anywhere. And he didn't travel with us anywhere, like down to Austin and all that. But he did he did play on the record, and he in the original incarnations before he ever recorded anything. He was he was right there in it. He was part of the band. And there's several. There's quite a few other people that were that we sort of thought of as members of the Flatlanders. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Tommy, I, was, Tommy was a major, major uh, part of that. And it was uh, really because he and I had both the music and our other interests in common. We, we became really close. And, it, and it's a big part of the story of how the Flatlanders happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that like that's one of those little things that maybe we don't necessarily think about. But you know, you mentioned him being a an owner of a of of a club, the the most the most popular club in town always, right? Or like Terry's dad bringing in different music yeah. acts. Yeah, um, Allen. Yeah, yeah. Having that's so integral to to you know the foundation of of a of a of, of a lot of people when, as far as their memories going back to Lubbock and becoming songwriters and, um, or artists or musicians. And, um, it, it's also maybe an interesting thing where geographically, uh, since Lubbock is in the middle of nowhere, it's between, you know, major places, maybe like where these, these stars of course had to like stop in, in, in Lubbock because of obviously, um, it's a it's a good place to stop uh, on yeah. the way between California and and wherever they're going back east or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, how how important do you do you remember going to a bunch of uh, shows out like at the Cotton Club or any of these other places growing up? Well, when I when I was small, I didn't because those were you know those uh, they were rough places and they were you know it wasn't. Um, wasn't a family type atmosphere at all, you know. They, they were like you know, raunchy nightclubs, you know. And and uh, but uh, but then later on, you know, I played I played the Cotton Club a lot with Tommy and with you know. And, but he had he had earlier clubs inside of the Rendezvous Club, and you know that that uh, and so and that. But that, I was too young at that time. I you know I did, I wasn't I didn't. And it, the shows that I saw were more were like concerts, like Sweat, Sled Allen's, like like I I saw Elvis and Johnny Cash, you know, <laughs> at the. I always thought it was the Fair Park Coliseum, but it was it might have been the the Sled Allen Arena. That's what I think Terry thinks that's where. And but anyway, it uh, someday I got to look all that up and get it really. <laughs> together, but I know that that Sled Allen produced that stuff, and 
and I was, uh, and I think the there's there's so much uh, hidden history behind you know, behind all of it. You know, the the uh, as you said, it was a stopover point for a whole bunch of people, and so Tommy. Tommy was friends with everybody, with all of those people, because he would, he'd have the club that they'd play at on the on the way through, and and the, he uh, the, uh, the the little circle of friends that were uh, several of them that were DJs in Lubbock, Waylon Jennings, Bill Mack was one of them. These were people that were influential on me before I ever knew they were musicians because they were DJs because you know heard them on the radio all the time and KLLL was one of the best radio stations in the world it was the funniest its its whole motif was crazy off the wall humor and <laughs> and the, the Corbins Slam and Sky and, the, and you know all the, all the it was part of our beautiful. Oh, huh, 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 huh. I'm getting these messages. My my granddaughter her has got a real serious problem with her eye that came up the last couple of days. No, but uh, anyway, we're. Uh, um, I think I'd have, I think I diverted myself from the question you asked. I was talking about. <laughs> Lubbock being a stopover point, so it really was. It was a crossroads, and so uh, I saw some of those people as they came through. You know, when I was younger, but but mostly it was things had changed a bit. You know, Willie Nelson came and saw the Flatlanders in at the at the old Town Pump, which was on Fourth Street. I think it was at Fourth and Q, something like that, and and it was in the days before he moved to. Austin, you know, when he still had short hair and right, and the, uh, and he was there. He was there because he was part of that circle. Of friends. Willie Willie was a star in Lubbock before he was nationally. Of course, his songwriting. He was a star as a writer, but as a performer, he was played on the radio in Lubbock as if he was a you know very major star but before blue eyes crying in the rain and all that right the that's what's so amazing about someone like willie nelson is the i think sometimes maybe like young up-and-coming artists today they they think that if they don't have success by you know 25 or some ridiculously young number then they're they're not successful and then you kind of have to tell them you know Hey, like that. <laughs> but you have to tell him, you know, that like Willie Nelson didn't have his like first number one until he was like 42 years old with. Yeah. So like you got to just give it some time, you know, it goes back to that whole thing of uh, we're talking about at the very beginning, as far as the, the hard work and the talent and the, the luck, allow yeah. some luck to come in. Um, yeah. So one thing I'll, I'll get you out on is, is I think we always talk about Joe Ely having like, you know, a lot of the, the street cred with the clash. Right. And, 
and mm-hmm. all of that kind of, that's one of those things that everyone loves that relationship. And it's very, very awesome. Something that maybe not enough people know about though, is that you uh, and mud honey had put out an EP together. <laughs> yeah. uh, I find that fascinating right there as well. Um, how did that come together? Like, how did you end up, you know, doing this a uh, couple of singles with them? Uh, there was uh, somebody at, 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 I was on Electra at the time on, and, and uh, there was somebody at Electra that was a, a common friend who just, who came up with the idea and he just, you know, he knew them and you mean, he said, I think you guys would like each other. I think, it, which was true. Mm-hmm. And then it was, and, and we were, we were all of the enough of the experimental nature <laughs> to to try it out, and it turned out to be just a wonderful. Uh, it was an experiment that at least it worked, and it, it ended up it ended up you know bringing me to a a circle of people that would never ever ever have heard of me otherwise. Right. Yeah, that's one of those uh, when you look at the. Jimmy Dale Gilmore catalog, you see that and you go, Oh, I wonder, I have to go find this. And then you find it and then it just makes sense, you know? And I, I think it's just one of those things where, um, again, like we talk about Joe and the clash, we need to talk about Jimmy Dale Gilmore and mud honey a little bit more too. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's been really, really, I guess, well, I guess the, go ahead. The clash, the clash was a bit more of a, like a, household name <laughs> around the world but 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 mud honey really really had a a real following a real you know uh loyal following and mm-hmm. so it was, it, it was it that was a that was a good uh, thing to happen at that period in my career yeah, I think so as well. I, I mean, it's a, uh, uh, I just, I go back every once in a while and listen to those songs right there that y'all did. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's been so great talking with you this afternoon. Um, I really do enjoy this new record. I've been listening to it, driving around Lubbock. And uh, I think it's, you know, obviously uh, people are going to love it. And hopefully uh, more people go out and discover uh, what the Flatlanders, who the Flatlanders were. Well, I hope so. That would be, that would be really fun. It's, it's, it's fun to watch it unfold. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really like the fact that, that you, you, you know, a, a bunch of the history. I, I that's, that's encouraging to me <laughs> well, Young yeah. people to know <laughs> some of the background there. Yeah, it's been uh it's one of those things where I moved up here. Uh I grew up in Fort Stockton and I moved up here to go to school and uh always been fascinated with music and was going to school for journalism and just the two worlds collided and uh know a lot of like the local guys the, the scene right now and what's been coming out and then of course when you do that you you go back and start discovering more of the uh, people before there and um you know trying to f- find where where certain points are you know, on the yeah. 
in the the Lubbock history map and all that kind of stuff. And oh, this is where this bar was, and this is where this was at, and yeah, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So it's been uh, I enjoy all the the uh, <laughs> the looking of of uh, the Lubbock music history. All right, that is it for this episode. Be sure to check out our presenting partners over at Desert Door and the Blue Light Live here in Lubbock, Texas. As mentioned up top, this is one of a three-part series with the Flatlanders. This episode was obviously with Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Later this week, I'm joined by Joe Ely and Butch Hancock of the Flatlanders. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't just yet. And yeah, thanks so much for listening.